the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. He's a Gentile, and he's got a specific assessment of Jesus as well as himself, as we'll see next on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Luke chapter 7, verse 1, right on through to chapter 8 and verse 3. It's a chunk of verses, and it's a look at the centurion's assessment of himself and Jesus. If you'll remember, he's got a specific understanding of Jesus and his ministry, as well as himself. It's a humble view, a lot of lessons to be learned in this passage. So please join us with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Here's today's edition of Abounding Grace. The centurion's assessment of himself and Jesus. After a couple of months of studying the Sermon on the Mount, we came to the conclusion that only God could have preached a sermon like that. The most important point of the Sermon on the Mount is that the preacher is God himself. In the sermon, Christ tells us his words are on par with God. Because he says he is the one who determines the destinies of every man. And he is the one who determines and tries the genuineness or counterfeit nature of faith. He is the one before whom everyone will stand in judgment. The preacher of this great sermon is God incarnate, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now in chapter 7 through chapter 8, verse 3... We have a collection of stories that verify Jesus as God himself. Luke is not just stringing together isolated events in the life of Christ. One thing you learn quickly in studying Luke is that he is not only a historian and not only an evangelist, but he is also a masterful literary artist. Luke does not include anything that is extraneous to his point, and everything he says, he weaves together into a unity with a common theme, and that is what Luke is doing in chapter 1 through chapter 8, 3. Now, as I review these verses, our text, of our text, I want you to see if you can detect a theme. For instance, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 10, we see the healing of a Roman centurion slave. In verse 11 through 17, we see Jesus raising the dead son of the widow of Nain. Then in verse 18 through 35, we see Jesus answering the question from John the Baptist, Are you really the expected one, the Messiah? And then Jesus proceeds to explain the role of John the Baptist in the gospel story and why people would reject John's message and reject his message as well. And in chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, 
We have the beautiful story of the anointing of Jesus' feet by a woman who was formerly immoral. And the first three verses of chapter 8 give us a brief description of the power of Jesus' preaching and his ability to cast out demons. Now, do you see the theme? The pivotal message that weaves it all together is Jesus' discussion with John the Baptist in verses 18 through 35. The point of that passage is when Jesus says, John, here is how you can know that I am the promised Messiah and the Lord's Christ, who is Christ the Lord. It is by my works, by the miraculous things I do and the powerful preaching I deliver. They are self-evident confirmations. They cannot be successfully argued against. They are confirmations from God that I am who I claim to be. So now, in light of that answer to John, let's go back to chapters 7, 1 through 17, and the two healings Christ performed. And we see only Christ the Lord can raise the dead. Verses 18 through 35, only the Lord Jesus Christ can determine one's standing in the kingdom of God. Verses 36 through 50, only Christ the Lord can forgive sin. And in chapters 8, 1 through 3, only Christ the Lord can cast out demons. And only Christ's preaching can accomplish what God can accomplish. Therefore, when John asked Jesus through his disciples, how can he be sure Jesus is the Savior sent from God? Since what Jesus says, notice what Jesus says in verses 22 and 23. Jesus says, here is how you can know. Go and report to John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is he who keeps from stumbling over me. Now, what is Jesus saying here? In fact, what is this whole section 7, through one, seven 1 through 8, 3 saying? It is saying that the miraculous works and preaching of Jesus Christ are self-evident proof there is, that there is absolutely no reason whatsoever for not believing that Jesus is everything that the Bible claims him to be. That is the point of this entire section. There is absolutely no good reason whatsoever in the light of Christ's miracles and preaching for believing anything other about him than what he claims that he is, to use the language of Luke, the Lord's Christ, who is Christ the Lord. He is God's Messiah who was prophesied in the Old Testament and who would come and save His people from their sins and restore them to God's favor. This is God in human flesh. Luke is presenting us with this truth over and over so that there is no doubt left in our mind that Jesus Christ is indeed God. He is fully human. He is fully God. And He is the only person in the history of mankind who can save individuals and cultures from the sin that would otherwise destroy them. And there's no good reason not to believe it. 
So the point he is making is that it isn't difficult to believe that what the Bible says about Jesus is true. Now, if you talk to an average young college professor who's a skeptic or an agnostic with a brand new squeaky clean PhD, he will say something like this to you. I I wish I could believe the way you Bible-believing Christians believe. It just sounds so wonderful and so simple. But I just have too many honest, difficult questions. Listen, beloved. The only reason it's difficult for him is not because there is some obscurity about it or some uncertainty about it or something untrue about it. The only reason that young Ph.D. finds it difficult to believe God's Word is because it is difficult until you do one thing, and that is until you surrender your mind to be governed by Jesus Christ Himself. You must quit suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. You must quit deceiving yourself. You must quit holding yourself up as the final authority. And you must surrender your mind to Jesus Christ and to His Word. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3.18, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. In other words, let him recognize his total intellectual, spiritual, moral bankruptcy and that God has made him a man and given him reason not to be the final standard and source of all truth and understanding about God, but to be a tool, an instrument by which he understands what the Bible says about God, having surrendered his mind and his heart to Christ in his word. Now, what is it to become a fool, so that you can become wise. It is to use Paul's word, words on another occasion, to destroy in yourself every speculation and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and to take every one of your thoughts captive to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, faith in Christ and in His word needs no props, it needs no crutches, It needs no confirmation, cooperation, or truth from man. It does not need the proof of logic. It does not need the evidence of science. And it does not need the affirmation of the experts and the scholars. The works of Jesus Christ are so self-evident and so self-confirming of God that if a person does not believe in Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior, as he is presented in the Bible, it is not so much that he can't, it is because he will not, choosing rather to suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Our faith does not rest on the testimony or in the confirmation or at the witness of any man or any church or any university or any pastor. It rests entirely and totally on the witness of Jesus Christ himself, to himself as Lord's Christ. Now, in John 5, Jesus said this in verses 33 through 40. Ye sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth. But I receive not testimony from man, but these things I say that you might be saved. He was a burning and a shining light, 
and you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. But I have greater witness than that of John, for the works which the Father hath given me to finish the same works that I do bear witness of me that the Father hath sent me. And the Father himself which hath sent me hath borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. And you have not heard his word abiding in you. For whom he hath sent him ye believe not. Search the scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. And you will not come to me that ye might have life. As Jesus is witnessing to these people, he is saying, bless your hearts. I know it's troublesome for you. I know you just, uh, you're just uh, you know, too smart for the gospel. I know you have too many intellectual, honest beliefs. So I'm just going to be patient and I'm going to let you try to work all these things out for yourself. Absolutely not. Jesus says here, the reason you don't believe in me is because you are unwilling to come to me, inexcusably choosing to disbelieve the absolute self-evident, self-attesting, self-confirming witness of Almighty God in my miracles and in my life. In all of my miracles, God is saying to you, this is the Son of God. This miracle is something no one but God incarnate can do. When you read the scriptures about me, he says, it is God in the scriptures saying to you, this is Jesus, the Son of God. Believe in him. Now, now when we come to this witness for God and the miracles of Jesus, Jesus says, my miracles are so obviously of divine authority and source and that to refuse my claims is to inexcusably fly, fly in the face of the facts and the inescapable authority of God. But you say, I want cooperation. All right, God says, Jesus' miracles prove he is God. Believe him. All right, God even says in the Bible that Jesus is God. Believe him. And then you, as a proud intellectual of the 21st century, says, well, that's all well and good. But let me get a little more confirmation from science, archaeology, logic, the scholars, just so I can be assured that God's witness is reliable. You see, that kind of thinking is blasphemous, beloved. If God were to come to you and say, this is true, and you were to say to him, now that sounds pretty good, but let me get a second opinion. Is that what's called intellectual honesty? Is that being objective? No, beloved, that's the height of rebellion against God. So the point of this passage is that when we put our faith in Christ, that faith rests not on what man says about Jesus, not on man's proofs, but on Christ because of the testimony of God in all of his miracles and in all of his word. So I ask you today, beloved, as we begin to study this great story, on what does your faith rest? Why do you believe in the things you believe about the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus says, believe in me simply because I do things that only God can do and there is no reason not to believe in me. What is the basis upon which your faith rests? Why do you believe what you believe about God and about Jesus? Jesus.
Is it because I tell you every Sunday? Is the only argument you have when somebody asks you, well, why do you believe those things? Well, because that's what the preacher said on Sunday. Then I tell you, beloved, your faith rests on sand. On to what does your faith actually rest? Well, John Calvin believed these things, so of course I believe them. Does your faith rest on something as sandy as man? Well, I believe what I believe because the Westminster Confession of Faith says these things. Once again, does your faith rest on man? Or does your faith rest upon the inescapable testimony of God to the claims of Jesus Christ in His Word? Remember what Paul said. He said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of man, but that your faith should rest on the power of God. And that is the point that Jesus is making here. And his answer to John the Baptist in this whole section is, Believe me, because of the testimony that God the Father Himself gives concerning me in my miraculous works and my preaching. And then your faith will be firm and it will be solid and secure because then it rests on God and not on man. Let's begin now to look at the stories in this section. First of all, this great story about the centurion slave. There was a crisis in that centurion's household. A slave who he thought very highly of was dying. Now a centurion was a commander of a hundred soldiers in the Roman army. This particular commander was in the service of Herod Antipas, and his responsibility was to keep the Jews under control. He was a Gentile, Probably a Roman citizen with a slave who was in a very critical condition. Bible commentator William Hendrickson says, On the basis of the Greek words used here, the slave may have had a progressive paralysis with muscular spasms that dangerously affected his respiratory system. This slave was highly regarded by the centurion. And in fact, Luke says at the very beginning of our text in verse 2, a certain centurion servant who was dear to him. He had a love for this slave. Now notice what he calls this slave down in verse 7. It, it doesn't actually come out so much in the English, but in, in Greek it does. And it says, For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word, and my servant, it says in English, but in the Greek, it actually says, and my boy will be healed. This slave was like a son to him. He highly regarded him, and he had the affection of a father toward this slave as if he was his son. Now, in this story, there are, to use the title of the sermon, four assessments and one miracle. Four people are evaluated, and in the evaluation of these four, God is expecting you to evaluate yourself, because God is evaluating you. The first assessment is the evaluation of the centurion by the Jewish leaders. The centurion had a slave who was dying, so he called on some Jewish elders to seek the help of Jesus. 
probably because Jesus was Jewish, so he thought these elders might have some influence on them rather than a Roman Gentile. But for whatever reason, he sends these Jewish leaders to Jesus to entreat him to come to the centurion's house and heal his servant. Now notice what these Jewish elders said about this centurion. This being, of course, our first assessment. Luke says in verse 4, And when they had come to Jesus, they earnestly entreated him, saying, He, the centurion, is worthy for you to grant this to him. For he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now, here, beloved, you see an example of the attitude of salvation by the rabbinic Jews of Jesus' day. Their religion was one of merit. They believed that your standing with God was dependent upon the good works one performed that God demands of all human beings. And if you did that, you could make sufficient points or have enough merit for God to accept you and forgive you of all your sins. And this was, of course, over against the religion of Jesus. Time and again, he sets his salvation against the rabbinic Judaism of his day. The Jewish elders said, Jesus, you need to heal this man's slave because this centurion is worth it. He is worthy of divine authority. He is worthy of you doing something favorable for him. My friends, that is antithetical to everything Jesus taught. Look at Luke 7.50, which we'll study later. But here he talks about this woman whom he saved from adultery and who was anointing his feet and displaying all kinds of love and works of compassion in the worship of Jesus. And Jesus says to this woman, Your worship and your good works and your faithfulness toward me is saving you. Is that what Jesus said? No, he said, Your faith. He doesn't bring up the anointing. He doesn't bring up the worship. He doesn't bring up her admiration. He doesn't bring up her reverence. He doesn't bring up any of those good things because they don't save you, beloved. It says your faith saves you. Remember that great point about the Pharisee and the publican, the taxpayer? Pharisee said, in effect, Lord, I'm glad that I've made more points than most men with you. And he was trying to justify himself with God and Jesus. And he says, and I'm particularly glad I'm not like that publican, which actually was the only one true thing that he said, because he was not like that publican. For the publican said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I don't have any merit whatsoever to claim before you. My only hope is in your mercy. So here you see the religion of Jesus' day that eventually brought about his crucifixion. It was a religion of merit and good works, trying to make points with God. Now, this is popularized and held by most Americans today. It has actually gone to an extreme. Think about this. How many times have you had people tell you this? When I stand before God, my life will be viewed in the balance and if the good things I do outbalance the bad things I do, then I'm going to be safe. But if it's vice versa, then I will be in great trouble with God at death. This is our 
typical religion beloved in America today. Rabbinical Judaism gone to seed in America as over against the religion of the Lord Jesus Christ, which says it is God's mercy and your faith in that mercy that is the means by which you submit yourself to Him. And that'll bring us to the end of our time today here on Abounding Grace with our teacher and pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. Thank you for joining us today. It's our hope and prayer that we've been able to encourage you in Christ and stimulate your walk in Him. To address questions, comments, prayer requests, or concerns, please call or write to us. We'd love to talk with you. 408-866-5607 is our phone number, 408 408- Eight six six five six zero seven. You're also welcome to visit our website. Drop us an email when you do. Reformedheritage.org. Real simple. Reformedheritage.org. A lot of information there about who we are. We would invite you again to stop by. Reformedheritage.org. Or if you're writing to us, the address is PMB Post Mailbox four zero two, and the address is fourteen eighty four Pollard Road. Los Gatos, California, 95032. That address can be found on our website, reformedheritage.org, or again, simply call 408-866-5607. Copies of today's program are just $5. Mention today's date, and we'll get a CD out to you. And please remember that we are listener-supported which means when you link arms with us financially, we're able to continue the ministry here on this station. It's a great way to study God's Word together, isn't it? And we'd love to continue to do so. Would you prayerfully consider how God might be leading you to partner with us? We'd love to hear from you. Again, won't you call 408-866-5607 or reformedheritage.org. Sunday services, by the way, if you'd like to join us, are 2 in the afternoon. We're located at Lone Hill Church, 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. Directions can be found at our website, reformedheritage.org. Again, Sunday services are at 2 p.m. Further information can be found again at reformedheritage.org or by calling 408-866-5607. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, God bless. (music) 